quick, sit down, hurry up, it's about to start. This is The Cinema Crew with Village Cinemas. Where am I? You're in the Four Realms, Princess Clara. As a kid, I went and saw Nutcracker the ballet and laughed at the name for about a week. Actually, I still find it funny. But will I find the new Disney big screen edition funny or fantastic? After this job, we're done. Because no one thinks we have the balls to pull this off. Steve McQueen, the first black filmmaker to win Best Motion Picture at the Oscars, is back with what some are saying could be the first action film to win the same prize. This is suicide. The danger's what makes it fun. Aussie star Tim Minchin has obviously been spending some time in Hollywood, possibly with a shaved patch on his head, because he stars as Friar Tuck in the new Robin Hood. Life is more precious than dignity. And Emma Thompson stars as... Look, it doesn't matter. It's Emma Thompson. I'm there. You two better not tell me the Children Act is bad because I love her so much. Hello. Hello. My name is Kyron Wheatley and I've seen heaps of movies, but neither of those. Luckily, Vari McIntyre. Hello. And Michael Campbell. Hello. Both have. Now, as always, we've got a Village Cinema's Gold Class double pass to give away a little bit later on. But first... This time has been difficult for all of us. But Christmas comes. We must do our best to enjoy it. I don't want to enjoy anything right now. Disney is on a run of remakes. They're going in for Toy Story 4, now that they own Pixar. Endless Star Wars films, now that they own Lucasfilm. And live-action versions of The Lion King and Beauty and the Beast. And now they're taking on The Nutcracker, originally a ballet that has been projected on big screens in 1986 and 1993. And it's now an all-singing, all-dancing, all-costumes, all-CGI, fantastical romp, or so it seems. This is the Nutcracker by way of like Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland. Right. They've kind of Disneyfied it. Uh, but for the story, it doesn't necessarily follow the story of the ballet. It follows the story of Clara, who in a classic Disney trope has a dead mother. Uh, and yeah. is bequeathed the jewel. Like Bambi. Like, like any Disney character, Belle, any of them. She's bequeathed from her dead mother a little egg with a key, a slot, and she can't find the key for it anywhere. Anyway, she goes to a Christmas party a little later on where her godfather, Morgan Freeman, says got a Christmas present for you, follow this piece of string. It'll lead you to your present. As she does, she finds herself in the world of the four realms. Sees how far the rabbit hole can go. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It, this, has all, this has all the classic Disney tropes. You know, the, the, as I said, the dead parent, the girl who doesn't quite fit into society because she's got brains, you know, th- those, all those classic... Girl with brains, imagine. <laughs> yeah, well, technically she's a Disney princess now. Yes. So, That's true. Yeah, that is true. As well as being based on the original ballet, it was E.T.A. Hoffman's 1816 story called The Nutcracker and the Mouse King. So they've kind of combined these two original stories into one because the original ballet didn't do very well. Uh, audiences didn't really like it. It was remade later on and that did better because the the two characters of Clara and the Nutcracker were turned into adults and there was a bit of a love story. But I actually prefer this version where they're children and it's just a friendship and they go on this adventure. And that doesn't happen a lot if you've got a female and a male main character. There's always a love story and I like how they avoided that this time. Yeah, they time. stay platonic, yeah. Yeah. You're right, it's kind of a romp more than anything, which is not necessarily what you associate the Nutcracker with. But it's got, you know, it's got sword fights and it's got, uh, it's got like people swinging from thing to thing and people It's got really fight. creepy clowns as well. Yeah. It's more of an adventure romp than I think you would expect it to be going in. Halt! Who goes there? It's just me. State your purpose, just me. No, my name is Clara and I must cross this bridge. Impossible. Nobody crosses the bridge to the fourth round without a direct order from the regents. Fourth round? 
Where am I? You're in the Christmas tree forest. But that is the fourth realm, which is currently at war with the other three realms. War? That is correct, Miss Clara, just me. There has been lots of remakes of fairy tale films in the last few years, like think Brothers Grimm, Hansel and Gretel, Red Riding Hood, and they're all a little bit darker um, than the original Disney like, animated, yeah, than the animated ones. So Disney has jumped on the bandwagon. Sorry. So Disney has jumped on the bandwagon and made some more realistic versions. Like I really like the darker ones of Maleficent, Snow White and the Huntsman. And this one isn't as adult as that. It is very much aimed at a younger audience. So for maybe older teens and that, there's there's not much uh, yeah. in the way of danger or violence or anything. But I think little kids, there is a little bit. I found the same thing. It was actually, it like skewed younger yeah. than I was expecting it to skew. It like... I'm talking like 12-year-old maybe? Yeah. Well, I, from the, I guess Mackenzie Foy is the the main actress who Mm. people might remember from Interstellar. She was the very young Jessica Chastain. Oh, right. I was expecting it to target girls of her age. I think it really goes after the little girl market, you know, the 12-year-old, 13-year-old girl, which that makes sense, doesn't it? It's a Disney film. (laughs) That's their bread and butter. It's only recently, (laughs) I guess, that they've been doing this Maleficent sort of vibe. And and I find Disney Disney like to have it both ways where they do the dark, gritty reboots of Maleficent, but they also do the Beauty and the Beast, very colourful, bright versions as well. They try and do a bit of both just to... To cater to everyone possible. Yeah, you can tell based on the saturation yeah. of the film. <laughs> if it's highly saturated, that's for a younger audience. Yeah. yeah. If it's more the grayscale, that's when you're going to see your violence, you, you skew upwards. Yeah, and like I said, this is by way of the Tim Burton Alice in Wonderland thing, which is uh, yeah. aesthetically, that wasn't a look I necessarily liked, but I know that I'm the minority in that because that movie made a billion dollars. And that's not me being like facetious. It made over a billion dollars at the box office. Yeah. So obviously people do connect to it. But for me, it's it's somewhere in between cartoony and realistic. It's this unsettling gray areas, like the uncanny valley almost. Yeah. This less so than the Alice in Wonderland things, but there's a little bit of that. Yeah, because they're all supposed to be toys. It's this magical realm. So there's the realm of the snowflakes, the realm of flowers, the realm of sweets, and there's the sugar plum fairy as one of the characters played by Kira Knightley. So it's all very nice and cute and there's sparkles and the costumes are great. Like the sets that they've done are, are wonderful. Even if the story is not interesting for maybe a really older audience, just the visuals captured yeah. me as well. The set design in particular, at the very beginning of the movie, they go to this Christmas ball and it's kind of vaguely Russian. They never yeah. they never go out and say this is set in Russia, but it's vaguely Russian. So it's all like these bright red walls and this huge Christmas tree. It's it's beautiful to look at set design wise. And you mentioned Kira Knightley as well. I've not seen her have this much fun in a movie probably since like Pirates of the Caribbean. Because <laughs> we recently saw a, a different Kira Knightley movie we'll talk about in a few weeks called Colette. And that's the more classic Kira Knightley period drama. Mm. This, she's she's just on a whole different level. I've never seen her like this. She's she's kind of doing a cutesy voice for most of it. Her, her hair is yeah. made of fairy floss. And I, I know I brought up this analogy a couple episodes ago when we talked about Journey's End. And I brought up the TV show Blackadder. And there's a very specific character in Blackadder called Queenie who talks with a very cutesy, high-pitched voice, but then when she gets angry, goes very low and grumbly like that. I, I would be surprised if growing up in the 80s in England like she did, she wasn't hugely inspired by that character <laughs> with this character. Because if you were to play them back to back, they sound almost identical. I saw an interview with her and she said that she was trying to make her voice sound like the song in the Nutcracker Ballet, the Dance of the Sugar Plum Fairies. Yeah. And it's all very high And her laugh and... in particular, she yeah. said, uh, her laugh yeah. follows the same like rhythmic pattern of the music. Right. 
That's some excellent acting research. <laughs> That's a commitment. It's about as far as you can because if you're researching a historical figure, I get that you can do a lot of research. Yeah. When you have to research the sugar plum fairy, yeah. you'd have to start grasping at things <laughs> like, I guess my laugh could be something. That's true. Merry Christmas, Clara. Godfather. Your gift this year will be something you'll never forget. Most people don't realize there are troubled realms within our world. And you hold the key to their secrets. Remember, Clara, nothing is as it seems. So is it related to the ballet at all? Yeah, there are some callbacks to it. There's a ballerina called Misty Copeland who performs a play within the movie. So Clara is watching with the other regents of the realms how their realms became what they are. So this ballerina is doing a dance. You're watching the Nutcracker being performed in the movie The Nutcracker. Yeah. That was actually a really cool sequence. They've kind of mixed this ballet with animations. So as she's stepping on things, things are lighting up and, and whatnot. It goes for, what, maybe five or six minutes of kind of uncut Nutcracker ballet. Yeah. And as someone that never really had an interest in that, I found it super, like, I was just amazed at how talented this ballerina was. Uncut Nutcracker. Uncut Nutcracker Ballet. Uncut Nutcracker. <laughs> Who should see this film? If you're a fan of the Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland, as we've said, I mentioned The Wizard of Oz, even Narnia, it's that sort of really fun, colourful kids movie that older audiences might enjoy as well. And if you're looking for something to take the family to that's a little more Christmas oriented, then I think this will, this will serve really well, for, yeah. especially for kids a little younger. You have no idea, do you? Or did you choose not to know? Your husband stole $2 million from me. This is about my life. This is about my life. And because it's about my life, it now becomes about yours. Steve McQueen was an American actor best known for The Great Escape and also being the most famous Steve McQueen in film. Well, he is at risk of losing the coveted most famous Steve McQueen spot because artist-turned-filmmaker Steve McQueen, <laughs> best known for making 12 Years a Slave, appears to be building a film career that will rival that of his predecessor. Tell us about Widows. This one is a dark crime thriller with four leading ladies and they are all brilliant. So they play these four women who don't know each other, but their husbands were criminals together and they were killed when this job goes wrong. And now they're left with the debts of the other criminals they were trying to steal from. So their lives are in danger. And one of the women pulls them all together and says, we've got to pull off this heist. We've got to get our lives back. They're not going to expect us as women to just fight back. So we can't roll over and we need to pull this off and save ourselves and get out of this mess. Is this an out-and-out action film? I wouldn't know. No, no. No, it's it's more, oh, my God. Because I've heard it described as the first action film that could be nominated for best There is action in it, but I I definitely wouldn't call it an action film. In fact, it's a real slow burn of a crime thriller. This has so many layers to it. And credit to the writer Gillian Flynn and Steve McQueen co-wrote it as well as directed it, that they were able to create this script that doesn't feel complicated and or stuffed full, but it they just expertly crafted these layers of local politics. There's the emotional story of the women. There's gender, class, crime, corruption. 
the heist itself, they've got backstory to it. And yet I didn't feel overwhelmed with it. It was just so well put together that this story unfolds organically. Yeah, this is way up my alley. I love a critic. Like, I think you may have noticed if you listen to more than a couple, I love a, like a real gritty crime drama. Mm. And this is like top tier gritty crime drama. Mm. And this is something that we've touched on a couple of times in a few episodes, but I really want to delve into here, which is direction. And it's just how good Steve McQueen is at direction. And there's one scene in particular that really stood out as a perfect example of why he is so good. And I think a lot of it's got to do with the fact that he used to be a visual artist and he went into filmmaking, which is obviously a a visual medium. uh, So he doesn't necessarily rely on just people telling each other stuff. There's this one great scene towards the middle of the movie where Colin Farrell is at a rally. He gives this rousing speech, gets in a limousine and then drives back to his house. And it's all in one single take. And in fact, the camera stays on the bonnet of the car and you don't actually see inside the car at all. It's just a big reflective uh, windscreen. That's all you see. And he's having this conversation that he wouldn't necessarily have in public. And just visually, you see the rundown neighborhood that he is giving this rally in to his house, which is three to four streets away. You see the change in environment as he's driving. The fact that he is rallying these people from low-income areas and, and trying to get their vote to where he lives just a couple of streets away where it's nothing like that. And you see the little voting pickets in people's lawns change as he gets closer to his house. What a brilliant visual way to show the separation between these two areas that are so close to each other. And he's manipulating one while being on the other. I love it. It's, and this movie is like chock full of moments like that. We're like, that's such a brilliant way to represent that. Our go date is in three days, the night of the debate. Now, all of our work is worth nothing if we don't move this money in fast. The notebook says $5 million. That's exactly the amount of money Mulligan was accused of taking in commission kickbacks. So over here, we have $2 million. 20 Tupperware boxes. Each box has $100,000 in $100 bills. It weighs 44 pounds. Now, over here, we have $2 million. 40 Tupperware boxes. Each box has $50,000 in $50 bills. It weighs 88 pounds. I feel like I'm in school. Tell me about it. We got to start thinking like professionals. We're in business together. There's not going to be some cozy reunion. After this job, we're done. We have three days to look and move like a team of men. The best thing we have going for us is being who we are. Why? Because no one thinks we have the balls to pull this off. My favourite aspect of this film, as it has been in a lot of films that we've talked about on this podcast, is these female characters. And I saw an interview with Michelle Rodriguez, who plays one of the the women, and she was saying how it was sort of ironic as a woman to be taught how to handle her femininity in this character by a man, as Steve McQueen was directing her. Because if you know Michelle Rodriguez from... She's a tough girl. Or, yeah, all the Fast and the Furious. She's very masculine and she said she had to do that to survive. She grew up in a ghetto and to get herself out, she had to earn respect and be independent and she had to portray this masculinity. And in this role, in Widows, she's more vulnerable. And all the, the women are, all the, the four main characters have to show this vulnerability and they progress throughout the film and and become something else. And for her, that was very vulnerable to her as a, as a human and an actor to show that. And that Steve McQueen drew that vulnerability out of her and she quotes it as this soft power. I love that phrase. Yeah, yeah. That she could use her femininity to still be strong. I wonder about this movie. 
I don't think it's for everyone, I should say. Uh, and I think it has the potential, it's being marketed as more of an action film than it is. And I think it has the potential to possibly frustrate people because it is, uh, it's, it's a little slow moving and it's very much, it doesn't hold your hand. You kind of need to pay attention mm. to make sure that you're, you're following these threads. Like you said, it's not complicated, but there's yeah. a lot of interpersonal connections you have to pick up on. Well, not too many action films take the time to no. have a drive down a road. Yeah. From from one set to another. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just don't want people to be manipulated into thinking it's a different movie than it is. I think it's such like a, a brilliant movie. But you just need to be aware that it's more like the movie Hello High Water from a few years ago, which is, again, was a little bit of a slow-burning, bank-robbing film, mm. more than it is you know, Ocean's 8. So who should see this film? If you like a good... I mean, me. Yeah, you. <laughs> if you like a good quality crime drama that doesn't talk down to you, it's. I think it's one of the best of the year. Yeah, it's a little bit different. Not as funny as Baby Driver or Logan Lucky, but there's that sort of twist to it in a, in a dark way. One thing keeps him in power. The money. We steal it. Want to hit the treasury itself? Set up a meeting. Everyone is with us. This is our shot. Here's the plan. This is an inside job. You are a lord. Get close with the sheriff. Who do you think the thief is? Clearly he's well trained. Adaptable under fire. You'll get him eventually. Remember the kid in Kingsman? The new spy who learns the ropes alongside Colin Firth? Well, now he's Robin Hood. He's running around stealing from the crown and giving it to the poor, or at least extraordinarily rich actors playing the poor. So is this a faithful classic or a gritty reboot? Oh, this is a reboot, definitely. But like how many hundreds of reboots have we had of Robin Hood? Yeah. So in this incarnation, he's actually a crusader. He's just come back from the crusades. Should we just quickly take a poll of everyone's favourite Robin Hood? King of Thieves. Um, <laughs> what, what? <laughs> the tights. Yeah, Kevin yeah, Costner. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. The, the great accent. Yeah. <laughs> I liked the 2010 one. Really? With, yeah. Oh, I, I've got What's something to say about that a little later on. Okay, cool. Okay. Anyway, so anyway, this yes. one. This one. This one. Robin Hood is actually a lord as well. Ooh, so he's like a Robin. lord by day, thief by night. And he wants to pull off this like inside job. It's another heist movie. He <laughs> yeah. wants to, yeah, he wants to rob the crown's treasury. Uh, and we should say this movie hasn't screened yet, not just for us, but mm. anywhere. Uh, but okay, this is what I do appreciate at least about this movie. It's a take. It's not, it's <laughs> not a generic, you know, this is the Robin Hood you've always known. At least they're doing something, which I think you need to do when it's been yeah. rebooted the millionth time. For example, he looks very fashionable. It's more of a hoodie, isn't it? Just, yeah. It's more of like a cool leather hoodie. <laughs> yeah, leather hoodie. Uh, Rob in the hood, am I right? And hey. I know, I know for a fact that they actually call. Sorry, him. can we just take a moment? Yeah. Why did they not call the movie that? <laughs> I know for a fact in this movie, for instance, they refer to him as Rob because right. they're trying to modernize it. You know what this reminds me of? Last year. So instead of Friar Tuck, it's like Cool Guy Tuck. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool Daddy Tuck. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like a youth worker. Yeah. <laughs> With a lot of scarves, you know. Yeah. Uh, this He's reminds been there, me, man. <laughs> I've been there. <laughs> this reminds me. Last year, Guy Ritchie made a King Arthur movie. Yeah. Which was kind of like, what if King Arthur was a lad? And he's all mm. the lights of the rain. Yeah, and used a GoPro. And Guy Ritchie has that famous like snorry cam technique where the camera's like strapped to someone's body as they're running. And he did like a Guy Ritchie King Arthur. Just from the visual style, it looks like that could be in the same cinematic universe. Yeah. They've turned Robin Hood into a bit of a lad. Are you saying Russell Crowe was not a lad? 
No, Russell Crowe was a 46-year-old man (laughs) trying to be a younger man. (laughs) So originally that 2010 Robin Hood, it was originally a script was written on spec. So this guy just wrote it because he had a cool idea and it was called Nottingham. And it was kind of a reversal of Robin Hood in which the Sheriff of Nottingham was the main character and Robin Hood was the villain and he was trying to stop Robin Hood. And it ended up on the blacklist of like the best unproduced screenplays of the year. And then uh, Russell Crowe and Ridley Scott wanted to work together again and his production company brought it. And he Who's? went, well, Ridley's uh, or? Ridley Scott, Ridley yeah. Scott, uh, Scott Free. And he went, well, I'm not making a Robin Hood movie if Robin Hood's not the hero. And then he, he turned it into like another generic Robin Hood. Mm. So I'd always been upset that you never got that unique, cool take of it. Right. So I've always had a bit of a grudge against it for that reason. Oh, which don't is, worry, there'll be way more Oh, Robin so much Hood more. Movies. It's like Sherlock Holmes. Yeah. Give yeah. it five yeah. years. There'll be well, another one. Free. There's no copyright exactly. over the material. <laughs> <laughs> We've done it. We've done it. The Cardinal is coming all the way from Rome. The Sheriff is throwing him a party. And guess who's invited? It's my day off. No days off English. You rest when you're dead. He's coming because of the hood. Our plan is working. It's very easy to say from where you're standing. The Cardinal is one of the most powerful people in the world. Whatever he's come to tell the Sheriff, we must hear it. I think what you mean is I must hear it. (laughs) I know Jamie Foxx is Little John. Yes. And it's a weird trend I found with Taron Edgerton movies which is he's always being mentored by like a big Hollywood star. Yeah. So in Kingsman, it's Colin Firth. In Eddie yeah. the yeah. Eagle, it's Hugh Jackman. And now in Robin Hood, it's Jamie Foxx. Yeah. I don't know. You'll what... grow up one day, Taron. <laughs> Stick with it. You'll be a movie star yourself. <laughs> Another aspect that they've tried to, I think, latch on to that cool aspect for young people is that they hired Lars Anderson, a YouTube star from Denmark, who got to viral fame in his speed shooting for archery. Robin Hood's character does a lot of speed shooting and Mm -hmm. he's like really super good. And it's sort of supposed to be this really ancient technique where you hold the arrows in your draw hand and you draw them from the other side of the bow so you can have a lot more accurate and quick shots rather than getting the arrows out of the quiver from your back. I love the idea that accuracy is important in a film. (laughs) Just cut. (laughs) <laughs> it's, it's a film <laughs> That's the easiest thing you could possibly Just cut to someone else firing it into the Oh, bullseye again? <laughs> so who should see this film? If you're in for just a good romp, I think It's just a bit of fun It's probably a good like weekend with your friends movie First date, maybe? Yeah, if you like that uh, Guy Ritchie, King Arthur film If you like history, but it's with lads now and GoPros <laughs> I think this is for you Also in cinemas this week Fantastic Beasts. The sequel to Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. An Old Man and the Gun. Robert Redford's final film. And is that about an old man and a gun? Uh, it is. Yeah, good. <laughs> you can hear about both of those by clicking on the previous episode in whatever podcast app you're in right now. My name's Fiona May. But in court, it's my lady. I'm always too busy. The law can take over your life. You coming to bed? Mm. Is tomorrow the case? Okay. My lady, they're ready for you. Court rise. Fee, shall we talk? Excuse me, long day. I don't know how to say this. I think... I think I want to have an affair. What? You don't see a lot of films about judges. Maybe it's a hard character type for people to identify with. They literally spend their lives on high. And so it's no surprise that the most empathetic, relatable actor in Hollywood has been called on to portray Your Honour in The Children Act. It's the inimitable Emma Thompson. The question is, has Thompson made this judge relatable? So she plays uh, Fiona May. 
and she is a high court judge and she has to proceed on all these huge cases. In, in the UK? In the US? UK, in the, UK. In the UK, in the UK. Uh, and and uh, cases brought to her about a young man that needs a blood transfusion, but his family is uh, Jehovah's Witness, which obviously is against their religion. She needs to decide whether or not she will override the parents' religious rights and save the child's life or whether or not she will stick to it. And that's the kind of moral dilemma she finds herself in. I kind of learned a lot about the judicial system. Uh, particularly in England, yeah. <laughs> I guess. I don't know if it's the same any, <laughs> anywhere else. Um, but, th- oh, my gosh, the things that judges have to go through. Like yeah. there's this sort of montage, I guess, at the beginning to set up her character and what she has to go through. And she's in a little back room and it's all quiet. And she has this assistant and he tries to bring her coffee. Throughout the movie, he continuously tries to bring her cups of coffee, <laughs> which she never even touches because she's always in a rush. Yeah. And then she rushes out and starts the thing. And it's these horrible, overwhelming emotional cases mm-hmm. all about children. And she has to make these life-changing decisions. And so she gets this one and she makes the unorthodox decision to go meet the kid in hospital. And it changes both of their lives. The kid is played by Fionn Whitehead, uh, who you might have seen in Dunkirk. And they're basically the only sort of... Who's who in Dunkirk? Well, it's hard because all the kids in Dunkirk look the same. Yeah, okay. <laughs> the kid one I knew was Harry Styles. Yeah. yeah. Like, I know him. Yeah, he pops. Yeah. <laughs> and Literally. <laughs> this young man and Emma Thompson and Stanley Tucci mm. is in it as well. It's basically they're the only characters. So it's a very Ian McEwan-esque movie. It's very like character driven. So it's, it's funny you mentioned that. So when I was watching, I was like, this, this seems mm. familiar and I can't put my finger on why. And it's kind of a bit solemn and yep. British and very repressed. Mm-hmm. And I, what mm-hmm. is this? And then the credits came up and it said written by Ian McEwan. And yep. I'm like, that's what it was. That's so who, why... what else has he written? What would we know? <laughs> we did on Chesil Beach. Yes. A little uh, while ago. Atonement, I guess is his most well-known. Yeah, he he loves a he loves a repressed British drama. Yeah, I haven't read any of his books, but as soon as I see a movie by him, you can instantly pick it. Now, yeah. now we know it. You touched on a little bit the world that this inhabits of of these like the lives of these judges and how they have to kind of emotionally turn off at points. So fascinating! Like what a what a really interesting world to build your film around and then how it affects her home life is Stanley Tucci is also yeah. really interesting. He he Tucci's asks her husband. Her husband, yeah. yeah. He asks for an affair in the most polite way I've ever seen. Mm. But the idea that she is because she's so emotionally repressed at work, it's starting to bleed into her home life as well and it's affecting that. But then she starts to connect with this young boy and she has to yeah, decide it's on so his life. So infuriating. I was so infuriated <laughs> by her character. Like yeah. she has absolutely no emotional connection to her husband. And he's like begging her, like, remember what our relationship used to be like? Why can't we get back there? And she's so involved in all these cases. She just slams the door on him. She never wants to talk. And he's so patient. And then for some reason, she develops this weird emotional attachment to the boy who's dying yeah. and has more of a connection with him than her husband. And I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> the only real fault I, I find in this movie is the performance of the young boy. I just found him a little bit annoying. I don't know if you found that yeah, as well. I, thought, I think he's supposed to be creepy as well. I and think, he does that. I don't know whether he was supposed to be younger than the actor that played him or something, but there was something about him that it seemed like he was trying for wide eyed innocence. <laughs> and the, that the, just came across as it creepy. It came across as creepy sometimes. Mm. And I don't know how much of it is intentional and how much of it is just his performance. Maybe it was brilliant. 
but he just he annoyed me a little bit. Yeah, and I don't know it's it's a horrible thing to say about a dying child. I realize that, but he's <laughs> no, he's not real. <laughs> but I think that's the thing, and that's what Ian McEwan does with all of his characters. He makes you like not like them a lot. <laughs> they all have horrible flaws, and they've all got these like horrible backstories yeah. and complicated relationships and emotions and stuff. And it doesn't again, it doesn't take you by the hand. It just lets you make your own decisions about these characters. So who should see this film? If you're a fan of the Ian McEwan films we mentioned earlier on Chesil mm. Beach, on Atonement, it's very much that style. It's a little more modern than than yeah. most of the stuff he's done, I suppose, because set in, in modern day. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's just a good quality British drama. Yeah, it's a very thoughtful piece. If you liked The Wife as well, similar to that. All right, here's a classic question for you. We want to know what your favourite Disney movie is and you could win a Village Cinema's Gold Class double pass. So go to Facebook and tell us. Or Instagram if you like, just leave a comment on the Cinema Group post. Next week, with his skin all green and his teeth all yellow, The Grinch is back just in time for surprise Christmas. Creed is the much-touted sequel to the Rocky series and now Creed has a sequel, Creed 2. And a bit of fun, see if you can guess whether the boxing film or the children's film has music from once banned from Australia hip-hop star Tyler the Creator, who is accused of homophobic lyrics. Well, you're wrong, because it's The Grinch. Uh, anyway, that's next week. Until then, thanks, Cambo. Thank you. Thanks, Vari. Thanks. I'm Kyron Wheatley, and we'll see you, or at least you'll hear us next week, on The Cinema Crew with Village Cinemas.